All right. Thank you. Thank you a lot. All right. Thank you, Richard. Got all these machines here. <laughs> Put that there. I feel like I'm going to be electrocuted here. <laughs> Can every, everybody hear me okay? Father, what about you? Can you hear me? You really massacred that Chesterton quotation, by the way. That was. <laughs> you know, it's amazing. Chesterton was always given a hard time for quote, misquoting other authors, and no one is misquoted more than G.K. Chesterton. I, I suppose it's all very, very fitting. Well, let's, uh, let's invoke uh, some help one more time, please. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, thank you very much for inviting me to St. Agnes. This is actually the first time I've ever been invited to speak here. And uh, I, don't, I don't know what I did right, finally. But uh, <laughs> I'm going to be talking tonight about G.K. Chesterton's conversion. I'm, it's not, this is not an introductory talk to Chesterton. But if you do need an introduction to Chesterton, I have plenty of them. On the back of, of the, at the back of the room, on the table, so please don't hesitate. A hundred years ago, exactly 100 years ago, G.K. Chesterton was lying semi-comatose and near to death. And uh, he, he had uh, had a total physical collapse the, the previous fall, and many people were expecting him to die. Uh, he, it took about another two months for him to recover. He recovered, he, he rose again right after Easter. And, uh, and then there were many people very close to him who were expecting that at that moment he would become Catholic. He would join the Catholic Church. There were several people waiting for a long time for this, this conversion to happen. One of those people was his wife, Frances. In fact, she went through a great period of turmoil during Chesterton's illness, wondering if she should call in a priest to have him anointed, to actually have him received into the church um, in his semi-comatose stage because she knew how much he wanted to become Catholic. But it would be seven more years uh, before he, he entered the Church of Rome. It wasn't until 1922 that he was received, and that was uh, at age 48. But it was part of a very long and deliberate conversion that began when he became a Christian right at the turn of the century. He, uh, we, he describes his process of becoming a Christian in his book, Orthodoxy. Uh, he was someone who was raised in a very liberal and Unitarian household with no creedal faith whatsoever. 
But his parents, very open-minded. Of course, the advantage of an open mind is the same as an open mouth. It's to be closed again on something solid. He, he was exposed to everything as a young man. He read everything. Uh, and one of the things he was exposed to was spiritualism, to the point where he was messing around with the equivalent of Ouija boards. He said he believed in the devil before he believed in God because he had some very real, very authentic experiences with evil, with a physical manifestation of evil to the point where it brought him right to the edge, to the edge of the abyss, to the, the, the facing self-annihilation. Uh, that's how far the demons pushed him. And he said he was saved by clinging to one thin thread of thanks. And he realized that existence was better than non-existence. And from that little axiom, he began to build a philosophy. And he, as he describes it in orthodoxy, he was going to put together the perfect religion, the perfect heresy. And when he put the finishing touches on it, he found out that it was orthodoxy. And that the new religion that he had come up with, someone else came up with it about 1900 years before he had. <laughs> Chesterton said the, the way he discovered Christianity was not by reading any Christian apologetics or any of the arguments for Christianity. He read what all the critics of Christianity had to say and what all the opponents had to say. And he saw what was so weak in all their arguments that it led him to the truth. That the fact that Christianity was attacked from all sides and for opposite reasons and contradictory reasons, he concluded there must be something to it. And uh, he says maybe Christianity is, this, is the central thing and all of the other philosophies are the peripheral and, and fringe ideas. He also know, knew that every, of, every one of the modern philosophies that he examined, if he took them to their logical conclusion, they would lead to madness. And not only madness, but self-destructive madness. Not only would they lead, lead to the insane asylum, they would lead to suicide. Because every modern philosophy is self-destructive. And the only one that really affirmed life and really was full of meaning was Christianity. He was married in 1901. The other great influence in his uh, Christian conversion was his fiancée and then his wife, Frances, Frances Blog, the first of the Blogs. <laughs> and he said she was the only Christian he'd ever met who was happy. And she had a profound influence on his life. And you'll be hearing more about her next week when uh, one of my colleagues uh, from the American Chesterton Society and who writes for Gilbert Magazine, 
Nancy Brown is going to come up here from Illinois and give you a talk on Francis Chesterton. She's actually uh, finishing up a biography of Francis Chesterton, which will be the first biography ever written of Chesterton's wife. And so um, uh, you'll hear about her, but she was a huge factor in him becoming uh, a Christian, but she was also the main, the main factor in him not becoming Catholic. She was really one of the main reasons for his delay. He considered himself quite, quite on the way to Rome uh, from the very moment that he became a Christian and always referred to the church when he talked about Christianity and always defended uh, a Catholic point of view. He, in 1903, he said that the church is attacked because it's Catholic. It will always be attacked because it's Catholic. It'll always be defended because it's Catholic. And that was 1903, that was long before his conversion. Orthodoxy was written in 1908 when he first comes out and explains what his Christian philosophy is. Along the way, there were several other people who uh, entered his life and played key roles in helping guide him towards Rome. The first one, uh, and certainly one of the, the most important, was a Catholic priest by the name of Monsignor John O'Connor, who uh, became the basis of a fictional character that Chesterton created by the name of Father Brown, the, the priest detective. Uh, he realized when he met uh, Monsignor O'Connor that, uh, that he saw the way people treated priests was, was ironic because in his own discussions with Father O'Connor, he realized not only was, was this a man of great culture and intelligence, but this was someone who really understood evil. And he didn't expect the church to know so much about evil. And, uh, and the, he got the idea for the, for the uh, de priest detective because everyone assumes that, that Catholic priests are naive and innocent and they don't really know the way of the world. But it's quite possible that someone who sits and listens to confessions all day <laughs> might understand the criminal mind. <laughs> The other, uh, another great influence in his life was uh, Chesterton's fellow writer, Hilaire Belloc, who was a cradle Catholic and always a defender of the Catholic faith and uh, a, a take-no-prisoners uh, defender of the Catholic faith. And what's interesting about Chesterton and Belloc, although they were very close friends, uh, when it came to the discussions of Catholicism, it got a little awkward between, between them. Um, Belloc wrote a very awkward letter to, uh, to Chesterton in about 1906, 1907, uh, just trying to explain, you know, why he was a Catholic and, uh, you know, we don't ever have to talk about this again. Uh, and I don't know what their discussions were like because they really had a very similar understanding of, of theology and, uh, 
and they certainly were defending the same things. And Chesterton once said, Belloc and I are, are actually very different from each other. We just happen to think alike when it comes to politics and religion. Uh, and, and Belloc actually may have also played a role in delaying Chesterton's conversion. Very ironic. Uh, I don't want to get ahead of myself in this talk, but when, it, when things were coming to a head and it was really clear that Chesterton was ready to make a decision, um, Belloc asked to meet with Monsignor O'Connor and said, was, was going to tell him that he didn't think it was a good idea for Chesterton to convert at that moment. <laughs> and, uh, you know, Providence stepped in and their meeting never took place. But that was going to be the purpose of the meeting and uh, that meeting never happened. Uh, another great, uh, great friend of Chesterton's, in fact, one of his very closest friends, was a writer and uh, foreign diplomat by the name of uh, Maurice Baring. And if any of you have seen the famous triple portrait of Chesterton and Belloc, uh, Baring is the third person in that, in that famous painting. Uh, it's called the conversation piece. And uh, when Chesterton saw the, the, the painting, he looked at it and he pointed to Baring and said, Baring. And then he pointed to Belloc and he said, overbearing. <laughs> And then he pointed to himself and said, past Bering. <laughs> Maurice Bering was a convert. He converted in 1909 and uh, played a very positive role in Chesterton's conversion, which I will even talk about just a little bit later. And another great influence in Chesterton's life towards his conversion was another priest by the name of Father Vincent McNabb, um, a Dominican friar who um, uh, was a great proponent of uh, the, um, the economic and social idea of distributism that was shared by Belloc and Chesterton, and really one of the great spokesmen uh, for distributism. And so uh, Father McNabb and Chesterton really worked together on those, those issues of, of Catholic social teaching. Uh, McNabb called Chesterton the greatest man in England. Chesterton called McNabb the greatest man in England. <laughs> and they truly felt that way about each other. And then, of course, I, I mentioned his wife, Frances. Frances, who he shared absolutely everything with and was so close to, who he absolutely depended on, because uh, Chesterton, uh, as some of you might be aware, was just a tad absent-minded. Chesterton said that to be absent-minded simply means to be present-minded about something else. <laughs> and he was always present-minded about something else because he was always writing and always, always having to get the next article or, or uh, book chapter done. Everything he wrote was under a deadline. Everything he wrote was under a deadline. He was writing with a messenger standing at the door, oftentimes waiting to take his copy to the train station to get it to London. And uh, without his wife uh, taking care of all the little details in his life, he was, he was helpless. 
You know, there's the famous story of him getting off a train on one of those occasions when he could not accompany her and she could not accompany him in the days before cell phones, walking to a train uh, telegraph station there at the train station and sending a telegram to his wife. M at Market Harborough, where ought I to be? <laughs> he once hailed a cab to take him to an address that was across the street. <laughs> once hailed a cab to take him to the offices of GK's Weekly, the newspaper that he was the editor of. <laughs> Didn't know the address. Cab driver had to stop at a newspaper stand and buy a copy of the newspaper to get him <laughs> to his own offices. When, uh, when they traveled together and stayed at a hotel, she would always have to go back to the hotel to get uh, the things that he left under the pillow, like his knife. I mean, who, who of us doesn't sleep with a knife under the pillow? <laughs> Once he traveled without her, and, and, uh, and she, she, she had to telegram to him how, when she, he came back, he, she asked, well, how did things go? He said, well, I, it, it was terrible. You didn't pack my pajamas. So I had no pajamas. He said, well, why didn't you just buy some? I didn't know that pajamas were something you could buy. <laughs> For him to make the most important decision of his life without her, without her being involved, without her joining him, was almost unthinkable. And it certainly was one of the main reasons for the delay in his conversion, because he did everything with her, and for him to not do this with her, or to do this without her, was very difficult. And she knew that he wanted to become Catholic. And she tried to encourage him, and all of a sudden she was not ready to convert. She was a very devout Anglican. There, there, was, uh, there was another Francis in his life that played a role in his conversion. And that was St. Francis. He had a lifelong devotion to this saint. He said St. Francis represented a, a bridge in his life from his early, early days to his later days, that he was always present and always a friend to him. Truly one of the great universal saints that always held this appeal to G.K. Chesterton. And Chesterton really has a mystical connection with St. Francis, as is revealed in his book uh, that he wrote on St. Francis. And uh, in that book, he says, the reason why people don't become Catholic is because they're too narrow. They, they're not broad enough in their thinking. Uh, and then the, the, there were two Francis's in his life, and then there were, there were two ladies in his life, too. He had a great devotion and also a lifelong devotion to Our Lady. He never had any of the Protestant objections to the Blessed Virgin Mary. Uh, he, he was writing poems about the Virgin Mary long before his conversion. And he thought there's just, there's this natural affection uh, 
for, for Mary and for this figure. And yet he realized that there's something distinctively Catholic about the devotion to Mary. Because he said whenever he thought about Mary, he thought about the church. Whenever he didn't think about Mary or tried not to think about her, it was because he was trying not to think about the Catholic Church. So there was always that connection. He, um, he for, the, for a long time, considered himself Anglo-Catholic. So he was, he, he was not going through any Protestant objections to the church. In fact, he often you know, made a little, a little fun of some of the, the classic Protestant objections. Now, as some of you know, I'm, I'm a former Baptist. Uh, the last thing that I ever expected was that I would be a defender of the Catholic faith someday. <laughs> and it was Chesterton who brought me to the Catholic Church. But as a Baptist, the Bible was the authority for me. And, um, and Chesterton says, you know, I can understand someone looking at the Catholic Church and seeing a Catholic procession going by with all the, the bells and the smells and the robes and the crosses and the scrolls and the priests and the robes and say, it's all bosh. What I can't understand is someone watching that same procession going by and saying, it's all bosh, except for the scrolls. <laughs> and that's the Baptist position right there. Catholic Church is all bosh, except for the scrolls. And we'll just take these parts of the scrolls out of it, and there we go. That's the Bible right there. <laughs> That's the authority right there. Uh, Chesterton, you know, he didn't have to go through that. Didn't have to go through any objections to Mary. A huge, huge hurdle for Baptists. Something that Catholics cannot understand why Baptists have such a problem with Mary. But they do. They do. Uh, but he at a certain point really reached a crisis where he knew he was not Catholic, but he also knew he wasn't anything else. He certainly knew he wasn't a Protestant. He also knew that the Anglican Church was not the Catholic Church. And he knew he had to make a move forward, but he was, he was stuck. In his book, The Catholic Church and Conversion, he describes the three stages of conversion. The first stage is you decide you're going to be fair to the Catholic Church. In other words, you're not going to necessarily agree with the Catholic Church, but you're not going to necessarily agree with all the criticisms of the Catholic Church. You're going to be fair. The problem with that is that there is no being fair to the Catholic Church. You're either for it or you're against it. And as soon as you stop being against it, you suddenly are being drawn towards it. And, and so the first stage is fatal. <laughs> and then comes the second stage, discovering the Catholic Church, just learning all those things about the church that you never knew. And he says it's like being in a, a new country with all these exotic animals and flowers and butterflies that you've never seen before and just learning about them and taking it all in and it's fascinating and that's truly the fun part of conversion 
because there's no commitment and you're just taking it all in, you can leave anytime you want. But then of course comes the third stage, running away from the Catholic Church. <laughs> because as soon as your head has been convinced, as soon as all of your intellectual arguments have been addressed, it's still a question of the will. It's still up to, up to what happens in your heart and the decision you have to make. And everything your heart is telling you is run away. Do not, do not give in because everything changes. Everything changes and then there's no going back. And you're trying to find that last way out. And something happens that triggers it that, that when you realize this is it. Now it's going to happen. Uh, for me, it was a violent argument I got into over lunch one day with the guy who was the co-founder of the American Chesterton Society. <laughs> and uh, I realized after that lunch that I was going to become Catholic. For G.K. Chesterton, he was on his way back from a trip to the Holy Land, and he was in Italy. And he was in the port city of Brindisi. And he simply walked into a church and looked up at a statue of the Madonna and child. And he said, when I get back to England, I'm going to finish what I started. And that was a difficult, difficult thing for him to do. Because it meant, it meant telling his wife. And his wife knew that this was coming and she was encouraging it. In fact, she would write letters to Father O'Connor. She actually wrote more letters to Father O'Connor than G.K. Chesterton wrote himself. She re really relied on him as a spiritual counselor. And she just was complaining at how fidgety uh, Chesterton had been because of this was just hanging over him. Uh, for his spiritual counseling, the, the person that he wrote letters to was uh, another convert that you're going to be hearing about in a couple weeks, Father Ronald Knox. Uh, Reverend Mr. Nathan Allen is going to be giving you a talk on, on Ronald Knox in a couple weeks. And uh, it's ironic that Chesterton went to him for spiritual guidance because Ronald Knox's own conversion could be attributed in part to his own reading of G.K. Chesterton. <laughs> so there's something twisted about that. Because Ronald Knox, a great Anglican chaplain at, uh, at Oxford, becomes Catholic because of reading arguments by G.K. Chesterton, who was not yet a Catholic. And then when Chesterton's ready to be received, who does he go to for instruction? Ronald Knox. But in the end, it was, it was uh, Monsignor O'Connor who received him into the church. And uh, Chesterton says, it all ends with the convert entering the church with his head bowed. And the outsiders look at him as if they, he's entering some sort of a prison. But for the convert, when he gets inside the church, he realizes that the church is larger on the inside than it is on the outside. 
and the freedom is on the inside. And it's the outside world that is narrow and is very much the prison. And that, he says, becoming Catholic not only be, means becoming free, a freedom that could not ever have been imagined before, but also it, does, it means not leaving off thinking, but learning how to think. And he said he always needed, he always needed a church that was right where he was right, but he also needed a church that was right where he was wrong. He says a Catholic is someone who has bucked up the courage to admit that there's something else that is smarter than he is. And he says the Catholic Church is the only thing that saves a man from the degrading slavery of being a child of his age. Chesterton was always fighting against the fashions and the trends of the world. And he realized there was one thing that's always stood above those things, and that is the Catholic Church, which doesn't change. On the day of his reception, in the morning, Monsignor O'Connor found him reading a copy of the Pitting Catechism, just furiously going through it to see if there's any last questions, any last problems that he had. Chester says that morning he stumbled across a line in the Penny Catechism that said, the two sins against hope are presumption and despair. He said when he read those lines, just that sentence, he said that summed up for him everything that he'd been trying to do in his career as a writer and a social critic was fight the two sins against hope, presumption and despair. He was always doing battle with the pessimists and the optimists <laughs> because they don't have a grip on reality. The, uh, the uh, optimist is the one who thinks that everything is bad except the pessimist. No, everything is good except the pessimist. That's what, the optimist is someone who, you see what's happening, Father? <laughs> it's like an infection. The optimist is the one who thinks that everything is good except the pessimist. And the pessimist is the one who thinks that everything is bad except himself. <laughs> and and he, that's who he was doing battle, battle with in, his, in all of his writing. And here, here was the church summing that up for him perfectly. He wrote a poem the day of his reception called The Convert. It ends with the lines, the sages have a hundred maps to give that trace their crawling cosmos like a tree. They rattle out re reason through many a sieve that stores the dust and lets the gold go free. But all these things are less than dust to me because my name is Lazarus and I live. And yet it was a bittersweet day. Both he and his wife wept. He had, he had to keep his arm around her and comfort her because they knew that something had separated them at that moment. It was really an event without much fanfare. 
in the little town of Beaconsfield where Chesterton lived, there was no Roman Catholic Church. There was only a little temporary uh, meeting room that was an annex to the railroad hotel that had a corrugated tin roof on it. And that's where they had mass. And that's, it was in that little building that no longer exists. It barely existed then, <laughs> where Chesterton was received into the church. And, um, and it, was, it was a difficult time for the next few years. Uh, Chesterton wrote his book, St. Francis of Assisi. That was the first book he wrote after his conversion. And it's poignant because he wrote this book about this saint who has the same name as his wife. And he talks about the fact that for Francis, his relationship with God, with God was not, was less a thing of religion and more of a love affair. And he talks about this love affair with God, a love that, that is hardly hu humanly imaginable. He says, but for me it is. And, and you can just feel underneath that, underneath what he's writing, there is this, this sense of loss and longing that Chesterton has because the great love of his life, his wife, he's not in full communion with her. Uh, that story ends happily, though, because uh, four years after Chesterton's reception, Francis was also received into the Catholic Church. And uh, I don't want to take anything away from what Nancy's going to tell you next week. But when Chesterton was asked why he became Catholic, he said, to get rid of my sins. Only the Catholic Church can do that. He says, when you step out of the confessional, you are five minutes old. And your whole life has started over again. Only the Catholic Church can do that for you. There was one other, one other thing that delayed his conversion. He writes about it in the, church, in the Catholic Church and conversion. He said, there, it has to be remembered that for the convert, when he's going through the stage of conversion, there is nothing that any enemy of the church can say that will possibly do any harm. But one wrong word from a Catholic can do a great deal of damage. And he would not have said that if it hadn't have happened to him. The only way he would know that is because he went through it himself. There is obviously was some Catholic that said something that made Chesterton step back and delay his step towards Rome. And I know that I went through it too. And it's really something for us all to think about. When we are representing the faith, who we're talking to, we're not quite sure sometimes who we're talking to. We maybe 
talking to someone who's really thinking about becoming Catholic. And we can make one amazingly idiotic remark that can do great damage and hold up their own step towards communion with the, with the church. And these things can be anything from really a, a smug sort of shop talk to, um, to something uncharitable about something that's not Catholic um, to, or, or, or even um, a, a, a violent defense of the Catholic faith that just you know, shows no, no charity whatsoever. There's a Chesterton line that I quote every day. I quote it every day. It comes up for some reason every day. It's, it's coming up right now. <laughs> here, here it comes. I gave a talk on Saturday. It, the, the, the line came up there. He, he says, when a, in a broken society, two things happen. The vices run wild and they do great damage. But the virtues also run wild, and the virtues do even greater damage. Because the virtues become isolated from each other and are wandering alone, and then the virtues actually start doing war with each other. And thus there'll be people who care only about truth, and there'll be somebody else who cares only about pity. But the people who care only about truth, their truth is pitiless, and the people who care only about pity, their pity is untruthful. And that's the battle we see today. We see it right in the Catholic Church. We see people who care only about truth, but their truth is pitiless. And we see people who care only about pity, but their pity is untruthful. And they both have an incomplete understanding and presentation of the faith. Because we always have to speak the truth, but we have to speak it in love. And we cannot ever compromise the truth, but never can we ever compromise our love and our charity and truly our, our pity, our sympathy for those who are lost or who disagree with us or who are going through their battles. And Chesterton himself was someone who was able to combine those things and really combined a great and deep love and compassion for for all other people, along with a, just a sharp, clear, crystal clear understanding of the truth, an expression of the truth. Uh, he, uh, and so, so someone, someone set him back, and I don't want to say it was Belloc. <laughs> but it probably was. Chesterton wrote a letter to his mother when he converted and um, tried to explain to her why he made this decision. Chesterton had a younger brother, Cecil, who had converted to Catholicism back in 1915, about almost exactly 100 years ago, about the time when, when Chesterton was sick, his, his brother converted. And his brother tragically died in World War I three years later. And, he's, and Chester wrote to his mother saying, I'm, I'm making the same decision that Cecil's made. I, I'm, I'm becoming Catholic. And he, he, he explained why. He said, 
because I am convinced that the fight for the family and the fight for the freedom of the citizen and the fight for everything decent can only be waged by the one fighting form of Christianity. That's what he called the Catholic Church, the one fighting form of Christianity. And very prophetically, he said, it's going to be the fight for the family, the fight for the freedom of the citizen, and the fight for everything decent. The fight that we're all fighting right now as Catholics. Chesterton, very much the prophet. And realize it's going to be done by the Catholic Church. That's who's going to wage this war. This war against the family and the war for freedom, the, the war for everything decent. The other letter he wrote right after his conversion was to his friend Maurice Baring. And Baring wrote him a beautiful letter back saying, I have been praying for your conversion. Something he couldn't say before his conversion, but he could say it afterwards. He could also tell him, there's been an entire convent of nuns that have been paying, praying for your conversion. In fact, there's been a lot of people praying for your conversion, and every time I enter a church, I have lit a candle for you. And I can tell you, I've also lit one for your wife. And I know that that there were people praying for my conversion. And you know what? It does a lot of good to pray for people's conversions. My, uh, my saintly uh, mother Angelica once said that um, every conversion is because someone was praying for it. And there were people praying for Chesterton's conversion. And when he became Catholic, it was front page news all over the world. That's how famous he was. He was really, really famous, really well known. And it was, it was big news all over the world. For a lot of people, it was big news because they thought he already was Catholic. <laughs> <laughs> For his friend George Bernard Shaw, who was his great intellectual opponent with whom he had many famous public debates, who had always made, friend, uh, made fun of what he called Chesterton's Roman Catholic hobby. It was a different kind of surprise. And he fired off a letter, Gilbert, this is going too far. <laughs> and yes, the attitude towards Chesterton did change after his conversion because he went from being a writer to being a Catholic writer. And suddenly, the, the large Chesterton seemed smaller in some people's eyes. And he was always described afterwards as, uh, as the Roman convert. Chesterton, the Roman convert. Uh, and um, he, he said that, uh, he said in his book, the Everlasting Man, that this book is not going to be about the chief event of my life. That's what he called his conversion, the chief event of his life. And uh, in that same book, he, he says that 
the dead thing goes with the stream. Only the living thing can go against it. And that's what he ended up doing. He, he, he had to be that living thing going against the stream of the world and not going along with the world as is so easy to do. Conversion is a tough road because you feel very alone. Uh, your fellow Protestants absolutely have no idea what you're going through and it's just amazing how cradle Catholics just have a hard time figuring out what to say to a convert. And so the convert just feels really alone. The only one who really understands it is another convert. And uh, of course, it, it ends with just a, a wonderful, a wonderful release and arrival uh, and, and is that, that great feeling of, of being home. You've, you've finally arrived home. Uh, for Chesterton, it, it, uh, even his arrival had, had that, that strange hiccup in it because he, he had to arrive without his wife. But then she joined him. And uh, within a few years, he was, uh, he was known as one of the great defenders of the, of the Catholic faith and even made a knight of the Order of St. Gregory by Pope Pius XI. Uh, who, upon Chesterton's death, sent a telegram to, to the Roman Catholic Church and in, in England to the, to the uh, Cardinal and then to uh, Chesterton's wife, calling him a gifted defender of the faith. And uh, his, uh, his work continues after his death as uh, the Chesterton Society has been very active in these last few years. Uh, we have watched with great privilege and great awe and joy as Chesterton continues to bring others into the Catholic faith. And the conversions that he has been uh, the instrumental player in, in these people's lives as they discover uh, someone who writes with great joy and great, uh, great vivid articulation in defending the faith in a way that's just always fresh and new. And now that the really exciting news is we may, we may raise Chesterton to the altar and there is this, this movement for his, his sainthood and I would encourage you to go back there and get a prayer card and start, uh, start putting it to work. <laughs> we, we've, had, we've had some wonderful stories already of, of answers to prayer for Chesterton's intercession. Um, the Catholic Church is the only thing that saves a man from the degrading slavery of being a child of his age. G.K. Chesterton. Thank you very much for your attention. Thank you. I'd be happy. Is there some time for some questions, Father? I'd be happy to take any, any questions. Yes? G.K. Chesterton and C.S. Lewis never met each other. A lot of people think they were friends, but um, what happened was C.S. Lewis is about 25 years younger than Chesterton, so... 
he was just on the ascendancy of his career right when Chesterton died. And uh, C.S. Lewis uh, really, really longed to meet Chesterton, but never did. Uh, Chesterton, a huge influence in C.S. Lewis's life. The Everlasting Man uh, was the book that really brought C.S. Lewis to Christianity. And you can see Chesterton's influence in virtually all of C.S. Lewis's writings. He, he really gets all of his arguments from Chesterton. So they thought very much alike, but Chesterton never knew who C.S. Lewis was. What else? Yes? What, what age group is being drawn to Chesterton? Um, what age group is being brought to, or being drawn to Chesterton? The answer is all age groups. Uh, the young are discovering him for the first time. And uh, we're, I'm seeing college students who want to do dissertations on, on Chesterton. It's not coming from their professors. It's, they've just discovered him on their own. And, uh, and yet there's this, this group in my generation that should have been taught Chesterton but weren't, who are discovering him one way or the other. And usually their reaction when they discover him is, is one of anger because they feel cheated. They say, why, didn't, why wasn't I taught this great writer? Because Chesterton was a great man of letters. I mean, just for his contributions to English literature alone, he deserves to be taught. But he's way too controversial because he's always pointing to God in all of his writings. And, you know, you can't do that because, you know, that's awkward. And so, um, so all of his great poetry and his, his great rhetorical writing and his, his novels, his plays, and, uh, and his marvelous essays, which are all masterpieces. He's, he's, a, he's just a master of the essay form, can't be studied because it's too religious. And so that makes him small, and he can't be studied. So there's that generation. And then there's the older generation that still remembers when Chesterton was taught. And they now are saying, this is great. I, I used to read Chesterton when I was young. Someone's bringing him back now, and they're excited too. So the answer is everybody. <laughs> yes? Can I give you permission for shameless self-promotion and, um, <laughs> and ask what exactly is ACS? What, do you, what, what actually do you do? No one's ever asked me that before. <laughs> Richard, what do we do? Uh, the, the American Chesterton Society uh, promotes Chesterton. And we, uh, we publish a magazine, which just happens to be the best magazine in the world, <laughs> Gilbert Magazine. Publishing a magazine is a lot of fun. Uh, and uh, we also maintain a very active website that is an information resource. We, encourage local Chester and societies to get started around the country and help them get going, and there's a lot of them now. Uh, I do a lot of speaking that I get invited to for one reason or the other, sometimes even locally, in the same place where I live, I get invited to speak. But, uh, and then uh, we, uh, we also put on a big national conference every year, which is probably the most fun on the planet. <laughs> 
and we, we have some flyers for our national conference, which is in San Antonio this year, right across from the Alamo. And uh, that's where a, a good place for a Chesterton conference. So uh, we, and so we do all those things, and, and uh, we sell a lot of Chesterton books and a lot of other Catholic-related uh, books, too. So we, we are in the process of officially becoming a Catholic lay apostolate. We, we aren't one officially, but we're treated like one. Uh, and then I've also had a hand uh, in starting a, a new high school, which I can't talk about. <laughs> yes? Um, it's great that the Chester Society is growing. And I was wondering, for something else you guys do, maybe as you look and analyze some of these politicians who can affect change, maybe offer them coaching on how they can think like Chesterton. I mean, anybody who can be friends with Bernard Shaw, and they were such intellectual enemies, but yet they were friends. And the way Chesterton spoke against evil in such a charitable way. I mean, people who can affect change are often taught saying just, they mean well. Well, it's not only politicians that need to learn how to debate, so do the people in the media and the people who, who run what uh, passes for entertainment. Um, because we've, we've lost the whole art of debate. And, and Chester, not only did he know how to get along with his opponent, he knew how to debate so that we could, you could actually get to a conclusion rather than just turning it turning into a shouting match or, or rather letting an argument degrade into a quarrel. And, uh, and so, yeah, he has a lot to teach us. Uh, you know, he, he belongs in the schools. He should be taught in the schools, but he's not. I mean, he's, he's basically being kept out of all the places where he, he belongs because everyone could benefit from his, his great philosophical uh, uh, understanding of, of how, how logic and reason work. And you know, everyone could benefit from that. Yeah, certainly our politicians could, uh, could benefit from that. Chesterton is not one who you know, is, is too keen on political solutions to problems. He's, he he, he much, much, has much more faith in grassroots and, and people changing things from the ground up because uh, it's, it's usually the politicians who screw things up from the, from the top down. And you know, he's, he says it's, he has the great line when he came to America, he says it's, it's, it's distressing to contemplate how few politicians are hanged. <laughs> and, I, and I'm sure he said that charitably, too. <laughs> Question, young man. You know, what he said over there, he said one of the big things that the American Chesterton Society does is it makes converts. You know, no one's actually supposed to know that. <laughs> it's always been our latent goal. The word latent means, you know, it's underneath that no one, but I, I guess we're all friends here. But yeah, really, that is what the American Chesterton Society does. It makes converts. And uh, he's one of them. <laughs> in fact, there's a few others sitting here in the room. Yes. Mm 
Now, that question I can answer. <laughs> there are two books that you can start with, either The Apostle of Common Sense or Common Sense 101. And those are perfect introductory books to Chesterton. Common Sense, uh, the, the Apostle of Common Sense is an overview of his most important books, give you a good taste of his writing. And then uh, Common Sense 101 is Chesterton by the main themes that he writes about. And I draw from a lot more material there. They're both excellent introductions, and they'll get you going. Then you can read anything after that. Yes, last question. On a personal basis, you're, say you're a Baptist. And although I'm from Minnesota, I had an experience. I lived in Arkansas, which is the belt buckle of the Bible Belt. Mm -hmm. And I, I met many Baptists there, and they couldn't even mention, they couldn't say the word Catholic. Or if you mentioned Mary, it was the end of the conversation and they ran the other way. I, I don't know how a Baptist converts to Catholicism because they're so <laughs> blinded. I, I'm, of course, I'm a cradle Catholic. Yeah. Well, the way a Baptist converts to Catholicism is he reads G.K. Chesterton. <laughs> 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 <laughs>